Feliz Navidad. How are you guys this morning? Yeah, you should be great. You should be great. Now, the reason I open up with that, because, you know, it, it is the Christmas season, and there's a lot of things going on, but one of the cool things that is happening here at Redemption Church is we have a team of people that literally right after Christmas are heading down to Mexico to help with an orphanage. In fact, our advanced team is leaving Christmas Day to go down and help an orphanage in Mexico. And you have an opportunity as well to be a part of that, right? We talk about Christmas is a season to give, not merely to receive. And so when you go out in the commons after the service, you're going to see a great-looking Christmas tree there. It's going to be well-decorated. And part of the decoration is little ornaments that you can take and you can fulfill what is requested in that ornament. And that's all going to go down to Mexico then on Christmas Day and connect with the team that's flying down uh, to to meet up with kind of the advanced team. And so if you would like to be a part of that to help an orphanage in Mexico, we would love for you to do that. And so you can grab one of those those ornaments after the service. Uh, It's going to be up for the next couple of weeks, and so you could grab that. That would be awesome. It's an opportunity for you, again, to just to do a little something for a great cause. And we're very excited about our team that's going down at the end of the month. And that's the first thing I want you to know about. Second thing I want you to know about is uh, right here in my hot little hand is a great tool for you to use for this Advent season. This whole series we're looking at for the month of December is called Veiled. We're looking at the coming of the birth of Christ. Every week we're really going to be looking at the birth of Christ. Uh, But on the 22nd, that is an opportunity for you at either 9.30 or 11.15 to bring a friend to a service where we're going to capture the essence of what the birth of Christ is really all about. And this is the card to do it. In fact, on the back it says, Veiled, a teen mom, a blue-collar dad, and a group of homeless men who watch God change the world. Who doesn't want to come see that? All right? So, um... This is something for you to use for that. You can give this to a friend. You can just put it up on your kitchen, whatever, and be reminded of, like, I want to reach my neighbor. I want to invite my neighbor to December 22nd because, again, this is going to be a great chance to do that. So you can pick these up at the information table uh, because, again, that's just going to be a tool for you to use. And then also keep in mind that on December 24th, Christmas Eve, uh, we as a church, we go and serve others, right? So the 22nd is sort of like our version of a Christmas Eve service. The 24th is us doing Christmas Eve serving. If you would like to be a part of that, you can go on the city, sign up for that. You can go to our website, find out about that. You can email Pastor Scott, and he can give you more information on that. Those are all things that you can figure out to kind of take this whole season of Christmas and and use it in a way that truly honors and worships God that we're here to worship today. So I'm going to go ahead and pray right now. Get us ready for today. See what Jesus has in store for us. So let's go ahead and dial it up, and uh, we're going to launch from there. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your love and grace. And I thank you that you literally, personally, truly came into this world and you sympathized with our weaknesses. You didn't come at 30 years of age on a white throne, everybody catering to you. You came as a baby to a teenage family in an impoverished environment, and you felt our woes, our pain, our challenges. You felt everything we feel yet without sin, and then in service and sacrifice, you gave yourself fully for us. I pray that that is not lost on us as we enter into the Christmas season where every Christian will say, it's all about you, but it's so easy to get diverted from you. So I pray that Advent will ground us, Advent will remind us that every one of these weeks will encourage us and give us direction in you. So we look to you, we love you, we thank you in your good and awesome name. Amen. 
Man, Christmas time. Christmas time is fully in gear. Now, if you would have gone to Walmart on July 5th, it was in gear there on July 5th, right? Like, it's just market America, right? Like, Christmas starts right after the 4th of July. But real Christmas starts when? Black Friday, right? I mean, that's, like, that's when we acknowledge that Christmas is in full swing. I mean, like most normal people, we're still kind of bothered that Christmas is fully up and running before Thanksgiving. We're like, no, no, give me my holidays one at a time, you know? Um, but now we're in it. And, and when I think about Christmas, and, and I, I tend to, you know, have that mind that kind of analyzes it at different levels, I realize uh, there's different Christmases, within our world, right? We are entering in very much to consumer Christmas, right? And we're going to see a lot of consumer Christmas. It's going to bombard us. It's going to be in our face everywhere. You go to the mall, there's consumer Christmas. You watch TV, consumer Christmas. Lots of consumer Christmas. And I'm not banging on consumer Christmas because you know what? I kind of, it's fun. There's some fun stuff about it. I don't want to rip on consumer Christmas, but we have consumer Christmas. We also have what I would call um, fabricated Christmas, Christmas is where we want some sense of the original story of Christmas, but we have some additives in there. So, like, fabricated Christmas is the little drummer boy Christmas, right? That's fabricated Christmas. And if you go home and you're setting up your nativity and somehow you put a drummer in your nativity, um, in love, remove the drummer, all right? Um, that's a fabricated Christmas. You know, it's like, I remember I asked my kids that one time, so I'm like, which gospel has the little drummer boy? And they're like, I don't know, is it Matthew or Luke? And I'm like, it's none! It's none! There's no drummer boy, all right? That's fabricated Christmas. Uh, there's also what I would call domesticated Christmas. And domesticated Christmas is very much captured in the nativities that we all put up in our homes, and it's a silent night, a holy night, all is calm, all is bright, Mary's wearing her best, like, you know, powder blues, uh, all of that. And it's this very clean, calm, nice, sweet, picturesque, postcard Christmas. But when we look at the Bible, we all know, if you know the story at all, that that is not exactly the framework of what it is we're celebrating this particular holiday season. When you really look at the journey to the Christmas story, when you watch the Christmas story unfold, you see some very different descriptors. You see words like failure and hardship and pain and grief and suffering and darkness and danger and sin and death, mistake, shame. Right? The, the road to this, you're like, wow, thanks, Merry Christmas. Um, like, the road to this thing that we remember. For us as Christians, is a very different type road, right? There's different sets of reasons for why Jesus comes into the world. He doesn't come into the world merely so we can create a holiday that's very family-oriented. He comes into the world because the world has a massive, massive problem. See, Advent is recalling and remembering and owning and accepting the fact that the problem for why this little child had to come to this world is because this world needed good news. It needed good news because what we live in is an environment of bad news. It needed good news of great joy for all peoples everywhere because all people everywhere have this really bad news, which is when they look at their future, when they look at the world around them, more often than not, they feel hopelessness, not hope. And see, God in His love knows that what we really need in life to get through life and to think about life beyond life is this idea of hope. We need that kind of hope. And so this little child comes into a world that desperately needs change. 
Here's the key about that. While the world needs change, the world didn't want to actually be changed. You catch that? While the world needed change, what the world was not necessarily looking for was to be changed. So when God enters into the human condition, when God enters the plane of human existence to show his love and to show his grace and to show his care and to show his concern, the world looks at that and says, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want, if I want change. See, that, that's what God really comes into. He came into a mess, and the mess said, yeah, we know we're messy, but we're not sure we want you to change us to correct the mess. If you would just correct the mess, but leave us, that would be okay. And so when Jesus comes into the world, he comes to his own, and the Bible says his own did not receive him. That is part of the Advent story. Part of the Advent story is the fact that God comes in this very special, miraculous, compelling way but he does so after years and centuries and generations of people that go every other direction than God's direction. That's Advent. But God still comes. God comes knowing our condition. God comes knowing our rebellion. God comes knowing our rejection. God still comes. And so even when we use this word Advent, this time of year, that word Advent, coming, keep it in that sense of context that he comes when we weren't really sure we wanted him to. Right? We didn't seek him, but he seeks us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the essence of Advent. And so today starts this great wonderful, reflective holiday. And, and I pray that you all use it. In fact, in the last two weeks, uh, we put a booklet on our website that you can use for Advent. It's on the city as well. You can download that as a family. It has daily readings to remember Advent. Now, that word Advent just means coming. That's all it means. And it's reflecting on the fact that Jesus has really come into the world, and it really changed everything. In fact, if I was to take it and break it down, I'd say Advent is an Advent of the promise of God, the problem of sin, the solution of Jesus. Thus, Advent is about a loving creator, a wayward creation, a vengeful protagonist, and a sacrificial and victorious Savior. That's Advent, and that's what we want to remember at this time of year. Trust me, we're all going to get captivated on all sorts of things over the next handful of days, right? We've got 25 days till Christmas, and there'll be a lot of things saying, look at me, watch me, follow me, do what I do. But what we want to do is say, all right, in the midst of all of that, as we have fun and enjoy all of it, to go, but boy, I want to make sure that I remember what this is truly all about. It's about this Jesus and his Advent, his Advent. Now, some of you may not be familiar with Advent. You may be like, ah, I don't know, I started coming to Redemption, suddenly you're using this Advent thing. I've never done it. That's okay, this is your big chance. We'll do it every Sunday as a church, and you, if you choose to, use that booklet. You can do it as a family, right? Have an Advent wreath, we'll light a candle every week. This what leak, we light the, the thematic candle, the candle of hope for the first week of Advent. Because what we need is hope. And, and what we do with Advent, if you're not familiar with it, it really is a journey through the Old Testament. Right? The four Sundays of Advent go way back in the Old Testament, and they think about what everybody had to think about there. Right? What was the coming hope? What was the future joy? What was the promise of love? I mean, these themes. How do we see true peace? These are the themes of Advent that we celebrate. And so we walk through the Old Testament up to the birth of Christ every week of Advent to really reflect on what it means that Jesus came. And so today, the word, the theme, the motto 
is hope. Hope. The world needs hope. The world wants hope. The world looks for hope. But to understand this word and give it a context, you have to understand uh, its placement in the big picture. Now, to do this, I want to have you in your mind just really quick. I want you to answer this question. When you think about, if, if you know the Bible at any level whatsoever, when you think about all of the content of the Bible... Um, what is to you the moment, situation, or circumstance that you would say that is the most hopeless moment in the Bible? The most hopeless moment. What is the most hopeless moment? See, some of you may look at that and say, well, I, I think the most hopeless moment is when Adam and Eve like totally blow it in Eden. Uh, that looks pretty hopeless. Some of us may fast forward saying, no, 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 the most hopeless moment is Jesus on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I all alone? That would be the most hopeless moment of the Bible. And you know what? Those are big, hopeless moments. I give you that. But the most hopeless moment is in a surprising place. It's actually found in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Here's why, because you might look at that and go, uh, okay, this guy did not go to Bible college. All right, so um, here's why. In Genesis 1, and particularly in Genesis 2, um, you, you have this state of perfection. You have this state of perfect bliss, perfect harmony, perfect everything. It is the most hopeless moment because it is a world that has no need of hope. It's a world with absolutely no need of hope. Because think about what hope is. Hope is the idea that what my current circumstance is, is not ideal. And I hope for something greater, something better, something more fulfilling, something more securing, whatever it is. That is the essence of hope. Hope says, I want to go upward somehow. Well, here you have Adam and Eve and Eden. They have no need for hope in Genesis 2. None. There's no purpose for it. Think about their day planner, right? Uh, what's your plan for tomorrow, Adam and Eve? Uh, wake up. We don't even have to get dressed. It's Nakedville. Um, we're going to eat fruit, hang out with animals, chill in the sun, and go to bed. What are you going to do tomorrow? Same thing. You don't want it to be a bit, get better? Don't need it to get better. It's perfect. We have no hope of anything better because we have no need of hope. One of the things we forget about some of the virtues that we admire is that those virtues to engage need a problem. They need a problem. In other words, for hope to be hope, we need a circumstance that is bad that then moves us to something that is better. We forget to have forgiveness. We need rebellion. We forget that to have grace, we need sin, right? So these virtues that we love, these virtues that we uphold are usually predicated on the fact that we've done something wrong and we want to move to a different state. We require something to fix us. Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's no need for that. Genesis 1 and 2 is a world without hope. But then you get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, you move from a world without hope to a world that is utterly and totally Hopeless, right? Hopeless. Where in an afternoon, there's this uh, sense of uh, we can be like God, uh, we can call the shots, uh, we can do what we want, uh, we, we can have this sense of equality with the one whose image we bear, and so what do they do? They rebel against God, and from that they suffered the painful consequences, and they lost access to God and to Eden, right? That, that starts to set up understanding the advent of hope. Right? 
where suddenly you go, I don't need hope, to now I desperately need hope and don't have any. Because what Adam and Eve did in an afternoon is they exchanged perfect bliss for radical uncertainty. They exchanged mental health for emotional wounds. They exchanged a perfect tomorrow for a painful today and an uncertain tomorrow. And instead of coming back to God and repenting, they chose to react against God still and enter into a deeper sense of hopelessness. And here's the thing about hope and hopelessness. In our sin and in our rebellion and in our brokenness, when we start to uh, have a sense of hopelessness and we try to get hope in broken ways, it just leaves us chasing hope, right? It's like the carrot in the horse. It's always beyond our grasp. We can never fully get that hope. We keep hoping for better hope. We keep hoping for a change in circumstance, a change in condition, a change in just emotional, internal feeling, whatever it is. We, we strive, we try, we chase for greater and greater hope. In fact, man, we chase a lot. We chase and we pine and we want, we fixate, we get obsessed with the need for hope. Because again, we find hope in all kinds of things. We go, well, man, if I just had security, that would give me hope. If I just had stability, that would give me hope. If I just had serenity, that would give me hope. If I just had certainty, that would give me hope. If I just had satisfaction, that's the hope I have, that one day I will have all of those things. Since we chase and we chase and we chase. And we chase a lot of the things in our world that we think have the capacity to establish that sense of hope, right? And that's what's so hard about it, man. I mean, I, I look at my own life and I see that. I see where, where sometimes I, I get off the rails and I start to look and think, this world can give me hope. It can meet my needs. It can fill my soul. It can give me that satisfaction that I want. But you know what? It's just me chasing. It's me chasing, right? Now, the way this starts is, first of all, I try to find the right things to, to, to put my hope in, right? And when I say find right things, what I'm talking about is taking good things and making them God things, which is a bad thing, right? So it's, I'm, I'm in essence talking about what the Bible would call idols, right? I start picking idols to be my hope. And, and again, you know, we think about idols like wood and metal objects, you know, basically an idol is any person, place, thing, or idea that we say, you know what, that person, place, thing, or ideal idea is going to rescue me. It's going to save me. It's going to fulfill me. It's going to give me purpose in life. That is pretty much the functional essence of an idol, right? And so we start looking around. We say, man, what, what will be the saviors for me tomorrow? What will be the things that bring me hope I need? What will be the things that if I put my hope in those things, I will have fulfillment? And so people start looking around and say, well, this guy will do it, or this girl will do it, or this job will do it, or this money will do it, or this raise will do it, or these kids will do it, or whatever it is, some success, some achievement, some notoriety, whatever it is. We start looking around a certain mental state, somebody going out of my life, that will fix it. Any number of things, those are just the saviors that we start to look around to and say, you can save me tomorrow. That's where I put my hope. And so we try to find the right things. Maybe it's not something that you're wanting to put your hope in to give you something. Maybe you're putting your hope in something or someone or some event that will act as the judge to vindicate you against those who have somehow wronged you. And you're like, man, if this would just happen to that person and this person would just intervene and if my boss could see what they really do and if my whatever, it's the same thing. Right? Find the right things to give us hope. To save me from my little life hell and bring me into my little desired life heaven. All of those things are finding the right things. That's the chasing of hope. 
And what we want that to do is to fabricate the right conditions in our life. So these things that I'm looking for, these things that I'm hoping in, if they just happen, they just occur, they just grab hold, you know what? Man, then I'm going to be good. Then I'm going to be content. Then I'm going to be at peace. Then my life will be full and happy and healthy and holy for me. But what we're doing is instead of having a return to Eden, we're trying to establish Medan, all right? where it's all about me, where we try to set up this little greenhouse, we set, establish our own little Medan garden, and we become God of our own garden, and we want that garden to service us and serve us and care for us with a false sense of hope in wrong things, right? The problem is, here's the guarantee, it never, ever works. It never, ever works. You don't have to look far to see this, right? You take a person who doesn't have a lot of money, maybe they're even poor, you know what they say? If I just had a little bit more money, I don't have to be rich, if I just had a little bit more money, I'd be good. And then they get a little bit more money, you know what they say? I need a little bit more money. And, and, and then they have that, well, I need a little bit more money. Then they get another raise, they get a job, they, get a, they still need more. Maybe they can move all the way into rich. You know what you hear from rich people? My life was happier when I was poor. It was just less complicated. People weren't trying to take from me all the time. I didn't have to make all these investments. I didn't have to spend money to keep money, to make money, to keep people out of my business, all of that. So if you're chasing, you can keep chasing, and it just becomes a circle after a while, right? That's a misplaced hope. You get people that say, you know what, uh, I, I'm single, I, I want somebody, so then they start dating, and dating's not enough, I want to get married, and once they're married, they say, I want to be single again, right? Right, because they're chasing. It's the same thing. You get the, the woman that says, I'm lonely, I want a baby, and then she has a baby, and she says, I don't have any alone time anymore. You know, like, like right? It's true. This is how it works. That's the chase. I hope this new condition will finally satisfy me. I get it. Again, you don't have to look far. This Christmas season, you could, you could do this in, in your own home. What, what you can do, you can take your kids, sit them down, first assignment, uh, write out your list of Christmas wants. Just put together your Christmas list. Write out everything you want. Right? Have them give the list. After they're done, sit them down again. Say, I want you to write a list of all the gifts you got last year. Right? Good luck. Right? But let's say, let's say they write the list. Now you take the list side by side and you say, now which list would make you happier? Get out everything you got last year or getting everything you want this year? It's the new list. It's totally the new list. Another test. After, after the holidays, they've got their gifts, everything else. Count how many days it takes before you hear one of two things. I'm bored. Right? So they got all these gifts. Bedroom's crazy crammed with gifts. See how long it takes before they say, I'm bored? Or they say, you know what I want? <laughs> right? It's true. And I, I, man, I'm, I'm in the category. I do the same thing. Right? B- because what that is, in essence, is a chasing of hope, right? It's what we should call hopeless hope. It's hopeless hope. Because, again, it's the carrot and the horse. It's the keep moving forward to get what you can't really ever get. It's saying the next thing will be the thing. And that thing comes, and it's always the next thing after that that will be the thing. What's the problem? First of all, the object is an idol. It's an idol, right? It's never going to pay off. It's going to be hopeless hope. Now, this particular holiday season is going to cater a lot to the idea of hopeless hope. It just will. So uh, most of the commercials you watch are going to cater exactly to that niche in our nature. Right? So what's going to happen? Here you are, 
in your pajamas, you haven't even gotten ready, you turn on the TV, and you see, wow, I got something flying on me. That was amazing. That was like a bird. I don't know what that was, man. Um, it's still somewhere in there. I don't know. Someplace, somewhere. All right. So it's probably in my underwear by now. All right. Awesome. Um, so so you, you, you get this, you, you're in the scene, right? You're sitting on your couch and everything else, and then you watch this commercial. And the commercial is going to be exactly what it is. It's going to be perfect snow falling out the window, right? Just manicured living room, great tree, great everything. It's this whole family sitting there drinking hot cocoa latte, right? Like that whole thing, right? And it's this perfect Christmas scene, and you're looking at that, and you're like, how do I have that perfect Christmas scene? You get her the bracelet from Zales, right? So, like, <laughs> right? That's how you get it. That, and so you're like, yes, I need a bracelet from Zales. You know, so, to have that perfect snow, cocoa, happy family, right? That's what happens. So then I got the bracelet, and not just that, but my kids, I saw this commercial, they were playing the Xbox One, they're so happy, they were doing their homework and everything, right? So I just get the Xbox One, I got her bracelet, and I got a 70-inch screen TV, because again, a bliss, right? Happy family, snow falling, go-go, happy Xbox bracelet, television set, and then what happens? Visa sends you their welcome to the New Year's card, right? So, and then you're like, suddenly those things aren't so fulfilling. Suddenly everything isn't so happy. And eventually the bracelet isn't worn so much, and eventually the Xbox is replaced to another Xbox, and eventually the TV starts to fade and lose its luster. And, and again, we're chasing. We're chasing hope that is hopeless hope. Right? That's always going to be the challenge. But we keep going because we keep thinking, no, these things are going to do it. They're going to do it. They're going to make me happy. They're going to make me heartfelt. They're going to make me hopeful. Problem is, they cannot and will not do that. Idols do not play by those rules. Right? Idols really will not, in the end, um, fulfill. They only put us in a, kind of a treadmill posture. They just keep us running. They don't really fill up the soul. Right? What this then breeds in our lives is then different attitudes. Now, some of you, you really do go against the grain. Some of you are crazy, crazy optimistic, right? You're just optimistic. Doesn't matter what it is. You're like, oh, yeah, it's bad today, but, you know, tomorrow will be great. Tomorrow will be great. You know what I mean? All three of you. Like, tomorrow will be great, you know? And you're like Tigger. You're just Tigger. Doesn't matter what's going on. You just try to be optimistic. But, you know, your thing is acknowledging today's not so hot, but tomorrow will be better. Next time will be better. Next year will be better. I'll get the better gift because, like, really, my wife told me this and I didn't do it. But next year will be better. You know, like, like that's your, you're just Tigger. You people drive me crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, we just can't chill very long. I'll, right? So, um, but that's you. But that's rare. That's rare. Most people are like Winnie the Pooh, right? He's just kind of, oh, you know. He's just, honey. You know, I mean, like, like, there's nothing, it's just like things could go good, things could go bad, whatever else. I don't know if they'll go great, hopefully it does, but I don't know. And there's just kind of a general end, it's kind of getting through life. And then some of us are like Eeyore, right? It'll probably break, right? It'll fall apart. I mean, it's just all all of that. And and yet all of that is still kind of in this framework of a hopeless hope where we're, we're kind of wanting, crossing our fingers, guarding ourselves against disappointment, um... You know, holding out for luck. That's all the attitude of a hopeless hope. And the outcomes are real simple. 
Um, sometimes it's just unknown. You know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but, you know, I'll just try to make the best of it. And we keep doing that until one or two things happen. We achieve that goal of hope until that runs out, and then we go after another one, or we become disheartened. And I meet people all the time that are just disheartened, discouraged, depressed, because they go, you know what? I, I, tried, to, I tried to hope at one point, I tried to make the investment, and I tried to believe in people, and I tried, tried to make sure that, you know what, I had a positive outlook like Tigger. And it all didn't play out for me. And now I'm bitter and angry and hurt. And everybody around me is a problem. And you know what? My life did not play out the way I intended. Um, all of that is because uh, hope fractured because it was hopeless hope. Right? It's interesting. I think about the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon, wisest man that ever lives, says, you know what? I took hopeless hope for a test run. So he goes through everything. He's like, man, so I tried to party like a frat guy to see if that would fill me up. Because what he says in the book is it's like chasing the wind, right? This idea of finding purpose and contentment in this life from the things the world gives us, it's like chasing wind. So he says, you know what? I put my hope and my joy in being a frat guy, and that didn't pay off. So then I went the other direction. I became very religious, not God-centered necessarily. He says I became very religious, very moral, played by all the rules. That didn't fill me up. That didn't bring me a sense of peace. I kept chasing that. So then I started to build a lot of things, become a philanthropist and a humanitarian, and try to really give to everybody. But that didn't fill me up either. Anything where God is not the center and the grounding of it is like chasing the wind. It's hopeless hope. In fact, you can equate it to flying a kite. In life, we will fly a lot of kites. And here's the trick. I mean, if you've flown a kite, you know exactly what you're facing. You need the right conditions. And that's sometimes how we treat life. Well, if I just have the right conditions, right money, right spouse, right home, right emotional stability, right everything, I can fly the kite like it's an autumn day in the sun with a nice breeze. But you know what it takes to wreck your kite flying day? Very little. It takes a day where it isn't windy. So what do you do? You start running to fly your kite. Right? You gotta run, 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 run. Right? When you were a kid, it was easy. You get older, man. It's like, <gasps> forget the kite, let it sit on the ground. Right? So, or the winds are too strong, tears your kite apart. Oh, so now I'm not having my kites thrashed. My life is thrashed. I'm running to keep my life afloat. Well, I need just the right conditions. Here's the thing we know about the right conditions for flying a kite uh, they're few and far between, comparative to every day. Right? So, if we're waiting for right condition, right environment, right person, right whatever, to fly our life, we will be living in hopeless hope. Hopeless hope. That's the challenge, right? It's not easy. Not at all. In fact, some people like Solomon realize that and they can say to us, you know what, here's the deal. And it's not just guys like Solomon. Matter of fact, uh, kind of a philosopher, writer, uh, just thinker, Francois de la Roque-Pocou, thank you, sophomore French, um, wrote this. He says, hope is the last thing that dies in a man. And though it be exceedingly deceitful, yet it is of this good use to us that while we are traveling through life, it conducts us in an easier and more pleasant way to our journey's end. What he recognized with a hopeless hope, a hope not founded in God, but a hope founded in this world bringing me hope and security and perseverance and everything else, what he basically came to the conclusion of is, hey, it's a really great tool to numb us until we die. Because it just leaves you chasing, chasing, chasing. You think tomorrow will be better than today, but if you look back, you're like, those things didn't really pay off. Maybe it'll eventually pay off. Right? And you just chase, 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 chase. And he says, you know what? 
But you know, it's a good, it's a good painkiller until we die. Paul understood this in slightly different terms. When he talks about issues of hope, the true hope versus false, hopeless hope. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, In those days, what, when people didn't know Jesus? He says, In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from God's people, Israel, and you did not know the promises that God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Now what's interesting for Paul in this is he, he's really bolting the two together. Right? So, uh, up to that point, I'm sure they had lived many days with hope in everything else but God. For Paul, he says, if you put your hope in anything else but God, you're without God and without hope. See, Paul knows that the true essence of hope is found in God because you ready? True hope in this life cannot come from the things of this life. It just cannot do it. The world is not built to instill or install a sense of lasting hope, no matter how badly we want it to. We keep coming back to that table. Every day we'll come back to that table. No, no, no. This thing is finally going to give me hope. This thing's finally going to give me peace. This thing's finally going to give me security. And then we find that, you know what, it wears off and we're looking for something else. Because, again, it's hopeless if God isn't the source of the hope. Right? That's the truth Throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible. See, part of it is we just have to shape our thinking. We have to think and and not see hope as like a state of mind or a state of affairs. Hope is actually a state of relationship. Uh, Hope is a state of uh, presence. Uh, Hope is a state of position. Where our position is in God. Our relationship is to God. God is in uh, intimate proximity with our presence, and we feed on the hope that he gives, not the hope that this world tries to uh, pull over our eyes like a veil and an illusion that says, ah, I can fulfill you, because again, we know the things of this world can't fulfill. They really can't. If they could, we'd all be fulfilled. We'd meet lots of really, really fulfilled people. I meet people that look really fulfilled to a lot of people, and then you sit down with them in the office, and you find out they're not so fulfilled. And you go, if I just had what they had, I would be fulfilled. And you know what they do? Well, if I just had what somebody else had, I'd be fulfilled. If I had a different spouse or different kids or different whatever, I'd be fulfilled. It's funny, even when you watch like actors or politicians and, you know, years down the road, they start to admit all of their challenges and fears and hardships. And you're like, wow, I thought you had it together. It's because we're all chasing. We're chasing a hope in this world, right? That's what's so interesting, I think, about going back to Genesis then and thinking about the advent of hope. Because there's this reason that the fall in Eden occurs. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, it says, For the creation, talking about the fall in Eden, talking about the rebellion of Adam and Eve, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So I don't know about you, man. I, I, like, I, every time I see this verse, I'm like, this is so weird. So we get this straight. It's like, here's this bliss, and then they rebel. And so God says, I'm going to subject it to futility. I'm going to make it all crazy, nutty, chasing the wind. And I do that for the sake of hope. I mean, that's weird. That just seems downright counterintuitive. How does that foster hope? Real simple. Because as soon as Adam and Eve rebelled, they wanted something. They wanted coverings. They wanted conditions. They wanted whatever. And they weren't finding any satisfaction. And God embedded all of that so that what we would do is finally get exasperated 
and say, I need something better than what this world gives. I need something more than what this world can provide or afford me. And so God puts in us this discontent so that we will seek him, which is the only source of true contentment. He puts in us this sense of misguided hope so that we finally get sick of it and we say, I need a true hope. He subjected it in futility for the sake of hope, right? And so as Adam and Eve are on their way out of Eden, hope is veiled in the setting. In Genesis 3.15, God is talking to all the guilty parties. He talks to the man, talks to the woman. Now he's talking to the serpent, the enemy, the devil who's brought this sin into the world and into Adam and Eve's life. And he says, from now on, he says this to the serpent, you and the woman will be enemies, and your seed and her seed will be enemies. And he, her seed, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He says there's going to be a clash between one that comes from the woman and you, enemy. Right? And Adam and Eve are just sitting there. They're spectators of this. They don't realize that what they're hearing in that moment is the promise of God to save and redeem. They don't know that. It's a veiled hope. But God says there's a hope. There's a hope. I will rescue. I will restore. Note in that, that little section right there, there's a woman, there's a son, there's a seed. Right? That's the promise of Eden. A son, a seed, and a woman. We see this then hope kindled again in the veiled legacy of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. It says, the Lord called to Abraham from heaven. And he says, because you've obeyed me and have not withheld your beloved son through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so you go back to Genesis with the woman and the serpent and the man. And God says, you know what, through you there will be a seed, a child, a son who will do damage and destruction to the enemy. That's the hope of restoration. God then comes to Abraham and says, you know, I, I got this thing, I promise, this hope I promised back in Genesis. Um, it's going to come through you and all the nations will be blessed by one. By one who will come and bless all. This hope is then anticipated in the veiled prophecy of Isaiah when it says, a virgin shall conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. So all the way through the Old Testament, this hope is established. Not a hope in the conditions of the world, not a hope in the change of the conditions of the world as the world can accomplish it, but there's this hope that one will come through a woman to destroy the enemy, to bring life, hope, purpose again. And so it, it's promised through Abraham, it's promised through Isaiah. And then we see the hope is unveiled with this sweet little teenage couple, right, in this divey town where God says, I'm going to change the world. So it says in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, son of David, angel says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son. Remember, a woman, a seed, a son. And you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this happened to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet that said, Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel which means God with us. See, this candle of hope, this promise of hope, is the most legitimate form, the purest form that we can ever conceive of, that God himself says, I will come to establish it. I will enter the fabric, fabric and, and the framework of this human state, and I will give you true hope. 
This is what Paul writes about when he says, God promised the gospel to Abraham long ago. So, again, good news for a world with bad news. He says, God promised this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. God gave this promise to Abraham and to his seed. Notice that it doesn't say to his seeds as if it meant many descendants. The promise was to his seed. And that, of course, means Christ. Again, all the way through the Old Testament, you can track it. The world was going to look for artificial hope, and God says, no, 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 man, I've got a true hope coming. And so what we remember on this first day of Advent is the nature of that true hope. Advent means Jesus came as gospel hope for this hopeless humanity. He's gospel hope. What Advent also means is that Jesus is coming again as the blessed hope of faithful Christianity. He says, you know what? I, I, I am your coming hope again, right? So we look back because he is our hope. We look forward that we have even a greater hope. And that's where we want to put our hope because, again, the more we put our hope in the things here, the more we're just going to get frustrated and discouraged. The more we're going to spin a lot of wheels. Because, again, I find myself doing that so very, very often. That's the essence Here's the bottom line about hope. Here's, here's hope in an encapsulated um, chestnut since it's Christmas. Why not? All right. Um, what is the object of hope? There's only one answer. According to the Bible, you have one answer. That answer, Jesus. And that may seem trivial. Uh, you, know, you might be like, oh, wasn't that nice? That's like a great Bible answer. Thank you, Sunday school. Um, it's the answer. It's the answer. I know it may not always be sophisticated or uh, that kind of thing, but that, that's the answer, right? Because the, the truth of this world, it, it just suffers from entropy. It just suffers from a perpetual breaking down, and it will keep breaking down unless an ordered energy from outside of it comes into it to regenerate and, and, and energize this world. This world is just a closed system of continual decay, and if we keep putting hope in something of t- continual decay, it just continually decays. We need something from outside, someone from outside, to be the object of hope, and that is Jesus. And so Jesus is the object of our hope. The attitude from that, hope isn't this. It isn't crossing fingers. It is a faithful conviction in the cross. Not cross fingers. We're not talking about luck. We're talking about conviction, certainty, certitude, belief that the cross accomplished all necessary goals. We've got to realize that in this, our outcome is an eternal purpose. We can't look around and say, well, how good is my life today and what is it going to be like tomorrow? Trust me, that can be really maddening, right? Really maddening. It's really easy to go, man, I don't know what tomorrow holds. Yeah, nobody does. It's easy to go, tomorrow's probably going to be bad. Thank you, Eeyore. You're probably right. Right? You're probably right. Tomorrow probably will be kind of rough. Right? Now Jesus does us a favor. says, eh, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems. There's always going to be problems. Right? This world is unforgiving. This world is not easy. And this is why Jesus is saying, man, don't fly a kite. Tether yourself to an anchor. Right? Kites need right conditions. Anchors, they violate the conditions. It doesn't matter the waves, it doesn't matter the wind, it doesn't matter the water, it doesn't matter because a, an anchor, a good, solid, deep anchor holds regardless of condition. We're never going to get the conditions we want, ever, ever. As soon as they're good, they get rough again. So we have to look and go, no, we have an eternal purpose. I think about that even in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12. Um, there's this whole list of people who had faith 
in the hope of the coming Messiah, right? So they're all the ones of the Old Testament, right, that, that had this faith in the coming hope. And, and what's amazing is some of their faith, you go, and it overcame, it conquered, it beat out their enemies. You're like, yeah, man, that's right. It always turns out good for half of the chapter. And then the other half of the chapter is, and there was people with faith in the coming hope, and they went to prison, they were sonned to, and they were killed, and they were hated, and they were mocked and despised, and their life just kind of basically sucked. But their hope wasn't in their conditions. Their hope was in their God, regardless of their conditions. That's, that's the difference. That's what Advent affords us, right? It's what it affords us. And so it was hope in God that caused all those people in the book of Hebrews, all those people in the Old Testament, to disregard the conditions, to mock the situation, to override the problems in hope. In fact, I close with a quote that really struck me one time when I read it. It says, hope, real hope, is much more than wishful musing. It stiffens, not slackens, the spiritual spine. Hope is serene, not giddy, eager without being naive, pleasantly steady without being smug. Hope is a realistic anticipation which takes the form of a determination not only to survive adversity, but moreover to endure well to the end. See, that is true hope. That is what Jesus came to give. And the more we let go of our idols that create an artificial hope that continually say circumstance will make you hopeful, the more we let go of those and embrace the one true God that says circumstance doesn't matter to make you truly hopeful, the more truly hopeful we will become. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for an opportunity to, to slow down and to really put this whole Advent season in context, um, I, I know my leanings. My leanings is I definitely like the commercial version, and I really like kind of the domesticated version. Uh, it, it's hard to realize that really what Advent is is a very gritty story um, with very broken people throughout many, many generations uh, that constantly highlight their need. And then I think about our own lives. I think about my own life um, and just how it is, it is still uh, broken and still foolish and so desperately needs your transformation. I'm so grateful that you came into this world. So grateful for the true advent and its nature. Jesus, I pray for those this morning who may not know you in this room. If you're somebody here that you... You say, man, I, I, I'm not claiming to be a Christian. I'm not claiming to know Jesus. I'm not claiming any of that. But you sense that God is speaking into your heart right now, saying, you know what? You need to follow me because you're putting your hope in things that are hopeless, that will not fulfill you, will not sustain you. If that's something you're sensing right now, you know what? Uh, for you to become a follower of Jesus is really a pretty simple gig. You say, you know what? I acknowledge that I have chased everything but you. I have chased everything to give me hope and peace and joy and love but you. I have sinned against you, but you and love came for me at the advent to give your life for me. You pray that prayer. You say, forgive me for my sin. Step into my life. Change me into what you want. You know what? That, that's what he does. He comes and he steps in. If you make that your prayer right now, he steps in. And I would love to hear about it. I stand at the door after every service. I would love for you to come and talk to me. I prayed that prayer. I said, Jesus, step into my life. I'd love to hear from you in that.
for the rest of us, man, we're on a journey where we're letting go of hopeless hope. And Jesus, I pray that you will encourage us in that. It's so easy to also beat up ourselves or to just blow it off. I, I pray for neither one of those. I pray for a sense of knowing who we are in you and from that being motivated in joy to follow hard after you. You are still our hope. You are always our hope. And so we thank you and love you for being our hope. It's to you, Jesus, completely. We do all that we do in your awesome name. Amen.